Well, aloha from Maui, Hawaii. This is Michael Benner, and we're here to do the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School today. Once again, it's Sunday afternoon in the United States, Sunday evening in Europe, and we're happy to be here with you with news and information, with uh, the teaching traditions of the various wisdoms of the world from all cultures and all societies, there is a general consensus about spirituality that comes from, well, non-religious times that in many ways precedes religion. And um, in the two or 3,000 years that religion is, you know, organized religion per se has existed on this earth, uh, there have also been mystery traditions or mystical traditions within those religions, or you might say above those traditions. The, uh, the nature of the word esoteric, of course, means for the few, while religion by its very nature is exoteric, which means for the many. So in a sense, religion is sort of um, elementary school and high school, and then mysticism, or the mystery schools, are the more advanced teachings for those who are willing to sit down and take a breath and relax and maybe even close your eyes and consider deeply the existential questions of who am I, why am I here, what am I for, where am I, what the heck is going on here, what's it really all about. And uh, the interesting thing is, in meditative states, these answers are available. Uh, many of them tend to form more quickly. They, as the old alchemist would say, these ideas or revelations precipitate. They condense and gently rain down into your awareness, the impress of a spiritual awareness, so-called expanded consciousness or higher awareness our higher consciousness or expanded awareness stands above you as the soul. And that's what we're going to talk about, really a non-religious approach today to the nature of the soul. The human soul we're talking about, but I would say all living things have souls. Indeed, at the core of the wisdom tradition is the idea that what people call God is a unified consciousness, a totality of all things, such that nothing could exist outside of this one thing or this one life. Okay, So everything, by definition, in the wisdom traditions, and if you dig deep enough into religion for that matter, everything has to be part of God. Nothing could stand outside of the one life that means, in a sense, everything's alive, right? Uh, right down to the so-called non-organic. Uh, I mean, most people will concede that human beings and animals uh, and plants are life forms, but they'd give you some resistance if you pointed to rocks and dirt and sand and soil and and clouds and gases and uh, water and, and say there, that's part of the one life too. 
in the mystical traditions of the world, in the mystery schools, it's always been taught that everything is alive, but to a different degree. So plants, for example, the vegetable kingdom, is much more awake and much more alive, if you will, uh, more uh, conscious of its existence than the mineral kingdom could ever be. Although the mineral kingdom, the wisdom says, is part of the one life. Okay, And so the hierarchy continues. Animals are more conscious. Does that mean superior to or better than? Well, maybe in some ways and maybe not in other ways. You have to develop your understanding of the word consciousness or awareness. Uh, certainly, if some life form was cruel in its domination of another life form, then by definition it couldn't be very conscious. I'm referring obviously to human beings who stand at the top of this hierarchy above the animals. We're more aware, more conscious. We use tools, we have language, sense of humor, math. Not only do we have math, we have the number zero. Pretty advanced thinkers, obviously, and yet we're not very conscious. Human beings, I'll say it this way, human beings are very intelligent, and everybody has the capacity to be much more intelligent than, <laughs> than we tend to act, and, and much more aware, awake, and alert than uh, the way we act. But um, most people never open those gifts. They never really go there. They don't want to know very much about themselves. They're not interested in being responsible for themselves. And so tragically, we waste a lot of time, many, many years of life, judging others as if we could control others and thereby manage our life. Of course, we're doing it backwards. Not to get too far afield, let me underscore this point, and we'll move on. The idea that everything has a soul, then. Human beings would have a soul. Um, animals, all members of the plant kingdom, and I would argue, theoretically, ideally, even the mineral kingdom would have to have its soul. Every molecule, every subatomic particle, uh, does a boulder or a rock know that it's a boulder or a rock? Well, yes, on some level, but not anything that we could understand. And yet there are women and men among us who are so exceptional in this regard that it's easy for me to make the argument that we're really not that far beyond the animals. Our animal nature is still... Uh, persuades us to behave in some inappropriate ways, as if the laws of the jungle are superior. I mean, war and capital punishment and torture, we give animals a bad name in some of the ways that we behave, allowing each other to, uh, to go hungry. Uh, many animals will share their food more effectively than humans, for that matter. Hold on a sec here. So, an animal has a soul, a plant has a soul. Those who believe in not only reincarnation, but so-called transmigration, believe that this soul can move in one lifetime 
uh, from one lifetime to another lifetime, from one kingdom to another kingdom. In other words, uh, if your karma dictates that you sort of blew it in this lifetime as a human being, you might have to come back as a lower life form, suffering in different ways, not as punishment, not as punishment, but as opportunities to understand the primary lessons of life. The lessons of love and harmony and wisdom are the lessons that we need to learn to grow and to heal and to understand, to expand our awareness increasingly. And uh, that's transmigration. And many uh, uh, in Eastern philosophy, various Eastern philosophies, Hindu, Buddhism, Taoism, um, which is Chinese, Jainism, um, Shintoism, uh, have different understandings, some believing in, in reincarnation only as a human soul. In other words, once a human soul, always a human soul. You've always been a human soul. You always will be a human soul. That's one particular point of view. Okay. And then the idea of transmigration is you could be a cockroach soul and inhabit a dog in the next lifetime and lifetime after that and a cow after that, you know, especially if you think cows are sacred. So a little uh, fine point on reincarnation and transmigration. Okay. Also, since the beginning, as far back as Pythagoras in the ancient Greeks, we see in Western civilization a, um, a belief in reincarnation and also a belief in some sort of redemption. I mean, I'm talking um, way before the appearance of Jesus Christ. Um, this would be, well, Pythagoras was about 500 B.C., and most of the old Greeks, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and, and the other Greek philosophers you hear about, um, there's a real explosion of philosophy and beginning to write things down about 500 B.C. And yet there was talk even then of the soul needing redemption, that somehow... Human beings and all life forms to varying degrees are in the image of the divinity that created us, that is currently, and let me put that in the present tense, that is creating us, that we are, a, uh, um, as, as these corporeal mortal beings, a reflection of an outpicturing or a manifestation of this um, divinity, which many argue is unfolding in its nature, that God is growing and expanding and learning and understanding more through us. Now, that's heretical in many religious traditions, to suggest. But that was part of the understanding in these uh, ancient, you might even say prehistoric times, when human beings first began to not only ponder these concepts, but reflect upon them deeply, write them down, and share their ideas with other people. They get together and uh, over over tea or or 
some other tasty, refreshing beverage and talk shop philosophy. They had a lot of time on their hands. There was a lot of cheap labor. So these were people who could afford to sit around and and philosophize, to contemplate, and and to reflect on such things. And there was a debate then, and even the earliest times on this earth, according to the oldest recorded history, where there was some sort of, yeah, you could say controversy or debate over the idea of whether all souls would eventually be redeemed. Since we're in the image and likeness of this divinity, but obviously we're not acting very godlike. Not then, not now. <laughs> and any growth that we see in humanity is obviously slow and uh, hard fought. Uh, the idea that we're becoming more loving, kinder, more compassionate. I, I, I think we can see it, but it's just so remarkably slow and, and frustrating for those who are out on the cutting edge. So even Pythagoras um, was part of the debate of will all souls be redeemed? This is interesting in light of the story in Judaism and the Hebrew Bible of Adam and Eve and the fall. If you understand that Adam and Eve may represent souls before they are incarnated, then the fall of Adam and Eve, remember Eve ate the apple because the snake told her it would taste good, is a volunt from the tree of knowledge of good and evil there's your dualities and dichotomies of the physical world. That, that's the story of Adam and Eve volunteering to incarnate. A willingness to come into separated forms and suffer the fears and the anxieties that come with being alone in a separated body. But that this fall was a fall from heaven that perhaps Eden, so-called, was not on earth but in what we now call heaven. And again, the story is Adam and Eve had to choose that because as souls, they had free will. And you always have the will, even now, as a mortal being, to align yourself with divine will to the best of your discernment, or to be willful and, uh, you know, party on Garth. Do whatever you want to do, regardless of the impact or consequences on other people. And because, of course, there's karma that goes along with every behavior, indeed every thought, indeed the frequency, uh, the frequency of the consciousness behind the thoughts and the feelings, let alone the behavior, is enough to cause the karma to begin to move. It's it's. Uh, it's like the law of gravity. It's not a good thing or a bad thing. There is no bad karma. There is no punishment. There are just consequences. So that you, it's a beautiful design if you think about it. You, you, you learn exactly what you need to learn, exactly when you need to learn it through these karmic lessons that unfold before us. Or you might say, grab a hold of us or trap us. These circumstances and situations come up, providing us with the opportunity to learn something really, really important. Most of us on this earth, even here in 2010, 
don't get that, haven't got the memo, don't don't understand it, haven't been exposed to it, not buying into it, and and really don't believe it. Okay, this uh, this whole concept I'm explaining, if you haven't figured by now, revolves around the central debate about the pre-existence of the soul, the idea that the soul exists before it incarnates, not only as Adam and Eve in Eden or heaven, and then by eating the apple, a symbol, an allegory for choosing to come into the world of form and flavor. Apple's a good example (laughs) of how wonderful it is to be in the world, to have available flavors and and colors and textures and temperatures and uh, and uh, all that goes with the material world of separated form. That love is here as well. Well, that's to be expected. Love is everywhere. And we have that at all levels. But doesn't mean you could bite into a nice juicy apple, you know, in uh, or, or some other delicious piece of fruit when you're existing as a soul in heaven, so-called, or Eden, sometimes called the buddhic plane or the hierarchy. That level, that plane or that sphere, it's argued by the ancient mystics, between heaven and earth. That's what we're talking about. And you have to understand that it's absolutely heretical for me or anybody else to suggest, and I'm not here <laughs> to, to, to be a heretic. I just happen to be heretical in many of my beliefs compared to the church. That's not my intention, but... I'm in good company. Many of the early church fathers in Christianity, the the early Catholic church, if you will, in the 2nd and 3rd century, 4th century, they believed in reincarnation. They wrote about reincarnation and the preexistence of the soul. The idea that the soul exists on its own plane, above and free of form, before you were incarnated, was decided to be a false teaching by a church council in Nicaea in the 6th century. There was a series of these councils of Nicaea, in fact, where early church doctrine was determined by a bunch of guys sitting around the table. right? And um, meeting after meeting, they decided this reincarnation was not a good idea to be teaching reincarnation because people would not go about the business of being spiritual and would not go to church and would not put money in the coffers as basic church economics. So we can't be teaching reincarnation because these heathens, they'll just party on and um, not be about the business of saving their souls. So we have to teach the one-time-only philosophy, and that means we must put into our church doctrine that a soul is made, this is the title of our program today, The Nature of the Soul, 
the church decided in the 5th century that the nature of the soul, the human soul, and only the human soul, only humans have souls, according to the church doctrine, contrary to what I've already explained, and that the soul is, is manufactured or crafted by God at the moment of human conception. I heard Bill Maher say on his uh, TV program one night, uh, by the time after sex, by the time you've uh, lit the cigarette you have after sex, there's already three people in the room, right? This is the teaching. This is, this is the rigid position on abortion, for example. This is why, in spite of millions of people in the third world dying from AIDS, the Catholic Church continues to outlaw the use of, of condoms in birth, because every sperm is sacred, as Monty Python would say. All right. And that it's upon this magical sexual conception that God, at that point, at that instant, makes a human soul and tucks it inside that zygote, that embryo, that fetus that eventually is born, in most cases, as a baby. Right. Now, you know that teaching. That's the church teaching. What you may not know is the ageless wisdom of the mystery schools of that body of esoteric philosophy known as mysticism, um, sometimes prisca theologia, that's another term, for, or the perennial philosophy. Uh, I'm, you believe what you want to believe. And part of the, part of the sign, one of the signs of a mature and intelligent individual is someone who can reflect upon something they don't believe. Uh, most people can't do that. They can only reflect on what they believe and they reject everything else. I think it was Aristotle that said something about this, that the mark of a mature person is their ability to ponder that which they do not believe or understand. So be intelligent about it. You don't have to decide now or a week from now or ever <laughs> which is true or what's true. I'm just saying there's an alternative here, and this may be, I feel like I should have a drum roll here or a trumpet fanfare. This teaching that I'm describing now may be the most heretical and blasphemous teaching from the church's point of view in the history of the church, the pre-existence of the soul. That means you were a soul before you were born, and it means, further, that your soul is in heaven now. Consider how threatening that is to the church, since its whole existence is to help you get your bad, rotten, sinful self into heaven. Get that bad... I remember when I was a little boy in catechism, Catholic school, Sunday school catechism, uh, in the Baltimore Catechism, there were these pictures of, they drew these pictures of milk bottles, glass milk bottles, and several of them were 
very clean and shiny, and you could see these little rays of light coming off them. And there were clean souls, good souls, like after confession, right? And, or after communion, your soul is all. And then over here are these dirty milk bottles, as if they'd been filled with mud and, and all kinds of dirt and soil all over them. And, and these are the souls of everybody else, right? The sinners and, and those who have not been to confession or not received communion. Or, hey, the mystery school says your soul is always beautiful. Your soul is the embodiment of divine love and could not be anything short of perfect love. And that the nature of the soul is love with a capital L. Love as truth with a capital T. Love as truth, wisdom. Love as truth, wisdom, consciousness the embodiment of perfect love. This is what Christ represents in the Trinity. The mind of God is the Father aspect. All of the creatures in its creation are the body, if you will, the physical body. The whole universe is the physical body of God. And the heart, the heart of God is the Christos, or the Buddha nature. And this is the soul corresponding to the emotional nature in man. As there is a, a trinity above, the father, son, and mother aspect, father, son, Holy Spirit, is God's will, God's love, and God's activity out into the world. We have a lower correspondence in us, our mental, emotional, and physical body would be a lower correspondence in we connect at the heart. You see, the emotional nature of man is the connection to the heart of God. And that's what Christ represented. Remember, he said, nobody comes to the Father but through me. You cannot approach the will of God except through the heart of God. And you can't do that with your mind. You have to do that with your heart, with your love. And the idea that a soul could be dirty or bad or sinful, um, you know, mystics don't talk about blasphemy, but that would be uh, a, a discordant uh, a belief. It wouldn't make sense. It's, it's not logical, you see, because the soul is perfect spirit. It's a, it's a radiation of divinity it's a propagation of divinity it's an extension if you will remember those remember when transistor radios had those telescoping antennas and they go you could pull out the like an old telescope you could you could extend the antenna well there's a great deal of philosophy that talks about human beings as extensions of their soul or think of a movie theater, where the movie that you're watching is really a reflection of something happening behind you. And when the movie's over, the child may say, where did it go? Where did the movie go? But by the time you're an adult, you figured it out. Well, the movie didn't go anyplace. It's still in the projector behind you. 
we weren't really looking at the movie. We were looking at a reflection of the movie. And so the mystic understands that when you die, you don't go anyplace. You're already there. You're in heaven now, you see. Well, that begs the question, if I'm in heaven now, if, if some aspect of me is this higher self or this soul, and some part of me has fallen into separated form where I'm filled with fear and consequently ignorance and confusion, which generates more fear and more ignorance, the vicious cycle we talked about, what was it, last week or the week before, the vicious cycle of fear and confusion. We have to think of ourselves as essentially two beings or, or as an energy being, a spiritual being with two poles. A north pole, which is your soul, already in heaven, the electromagnetic, the, the energy part of you, the infinite and eternal essence of who you are. And then the south pole of the bar magnet would be the extension in the form okay, that our parents procreated and created a body, an opportunity for this pre-existing soul to incarnate. Now let me again say, as wacky as this may sound to some of you, this is ancient. That doesn't mean it's true, but it is old. And many of the church fathers, Origen, for example, the founder, one of the founders of the Catholic Church, taught widely the pre-existence of the soul. Okay. Many of the early church fathers carried some of these, if you will, pagan philosophies with them because they were just eminently logical. See, what we keep coming back to is the idea that there's got to be a third element. There's got to be between spirit and matter, a middle. There's got to be between God and, and man, between the creator on one end and its creation and the creatures on the other end. There's got to be an interface. There's got to be a nexus. There's got to be some sort of in-between, some transition point. Right? And in Buddhism, this is generally called the third way or the middle way. And it is, it is core Buddhist philosophy to understand things as initially triune in nature, the trinity or the middle way, the famous teaching of Buddha getting his enlightenment. And there's several stories about how this happened, but one is that he, as he's sitting under the Bodhi tree, contemplating his existence, realizing that being a prince and a king did not make him happy or free from suffering, and being an aesthetic or a pauper with no material goods, who didn't feed himself but a grain of rice a day, had no material comforts at all, that didn't make him happy or help him escape suffering. And he's reflecting on this paradox. 
when, as the story goes, a guitar player, a guitar teacher, a lute teacher, and student float down the Ganges River past Buddha, sitting, he's not Buddha yet, he's Gautama Siddhartha, sitting under the tree, and he and Siddhartha hears the lute teacher, the guitar teacher, say to the student, now you've got to tune the instrument, and you've got to find the right pitch, because if the string is too loose, it will not play, and if the string is too tight, it'll break. And Siddhartha at that moment became realized. He became enlightened. He attained his nirvana, his awareness of the middle way. So this even speaks to the nature of the soul. That the soul is the Buddha nature. Now technically, you talk to most Buddhists, they'll say, oh no, Buddhists don't even believe in the soul. Well, they really do. <laughs> But you got to get very into the philosophy. Um, there's at least two tiers of teaching in most Buddhist traditions. One is for the common person, in which case there's just this dualistic idea of when you're alive as a separated form, as a mortal being in a body, you have this ego self. And then when you die, that's dissolved. That goes away and you are aware of self as the one God, the, the ultimate uh, Atman, the, the oneness. Yet even in Atman and Brahman, we see a suggestion of a, of a soul. And if you get deeply into Buddhism and some of the other uh, Eastern religions, you'll find inferences or references to this, Zen in particular, or Tibetan Buddhism, they have the Bodhisattva, the idea that somebody after they die can stay behind in a sense and continue to serve humanity. Sort of a suggestion that Buddhists and others who believe Eastern philosophy deeply and understand it in a profound way do recognize the need for a kind of a middle ground where the soul, it would be argued, shares the ground of God at the same time it extends itself into physical form. That's a, a platonic phrase, by the way. We're back to the ancient Greeks now. The idea that the, the soul shares the ground of God. The soul knows it's one thing, you see. But from a particular point of view, it knows it's one thing from a particular point of view. That might be a good way of thinking about it. And then upon incarnation, extends itself out into form, which of course is a temporary existence, a, a mortal being in a finite body, in a world of separated forms, consequently filled with, talk about separation anxiety don't you see how all of our fear our ignorance our confusion all of our pain and our suffering comes from being spiritual beings thrown into these separated bodies you know, buddha teaches that it's desire that causes suffering there's also an understanding that separation causes suffering 
just to to be a spiritual being aware of the oneness of of all things through love love everywhere equally present and then slam down into a body where love where your heart can be broken where love can be withheld um Someone once said, love is strange. Wasn't that Ian and Sylvia? Love is strange. Nazareth, love hurts. Now, everybody wants the warm, fuzzy part of love, uh, the presence of love. Nobody wants to feel abandoned, though. We don't want our hearts broken. And it seems, as long as we're in the world of form, we're going to have to suffer the yin and the yang of love, the, the presence and and the appearance of the absence of love. We're going to have to suffer. But not only for the reasons that, that Buddha put forth, desire in the Four Noble Truths, that you're setting yourself up for, for suffering by desiring material things and, and, and pleasures and, and um, certain circumstances, the fact that you want them or long for them, that you clutch them or, or attach to them or or hold on to them, or want them, um, is at the root of the suffering. Stop doing that, uh, and and you won't suffer. Well, fine, I think it's a rich and beautiful philosophy. I think there's also something to be said for the raw fear, and the uh, anxiety and nervousness that comes from finding ourselves as spiritual creatures trapped in these I've been quoting rock and roll lyrics, soul cages, as Sting would say. We're trapped in these soul cages. I want to get out of here. I want to go home. I want to be with my family, which is the oneness of all things. I want to feel the embrace of all that is life. And damn it, it's lonely down here on earth. Well, if as the ancients believed that the soul pre-exists, that it incarnates and perhaps reincarnates and perhaps transmigrates, but nevertheless, it exists before you're incarnated as a mortal being. And that means your soul is in heaven now. Doesn't that suggest that you ought to be able to tune in or come in touch with your own oversoul? above and free of form. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, this is the most heretical and radical thing that I could be telling you. This is the secret of the search for the grail. This is the great big deal secret of the Rosicrucians at the center of Freemasonry. This is the allegory of all the secrets, you know, Jason and the Golden Fleece and the search for this and that throughout time, uh, the nature of the soul existing already in heaven is why eight million women were burned as witches by the church, why the church killed millions of others in the Crusades and still millions more in its ongoing and perpetual inquisitions. These are the book burners, and they're still alive today, not just Catholics and their office of inquisition. And if you think that's not alive, the Pope today runs the office of inquisition. That's how he came to be the Pope. 
So the Inquisition is still happening. And, of course, we have in the Protestant community now a similar kind of uh, um, backlash, a similar uh, point of view, that this would be a heretical teaching, that your soul is already in heaven, that it's the embodiment of perfect love, and that you have access to it. Now, when I say your body, your your soul is perfect, <clears throat> there is an understanding that from our point of view, we don't realize, we don't have the ability to realize its perfection right offhand, so that the soul of a, of a Christ or a Buddha would represent the perfect embodiment of love that our souls do also, but they're like baby souls, like your soul and my soul certainly has the capacity to be, to be fully realized, but in terms of our need to reincarnate and to learn the lessons of life and the consequences of our, of our behavior, and even more importantly, the consciousness behind that behavior, we have to incarnate, we have to lose touch with our soul. But again, the ancient philosophies, this is not just me, I'm talking about the wisdom traditions, mysticism, the mystical traditions of the world say, hey, close your eyes, breathe, relax, and turn your attention away from the physical senses. Because the physical world through the physical senses is an illusion and it's distracting you like a bad dream. Look instead at the gaps between your thoughts. Silence your mind. Calm and tranquilize your emotional nature to be free from fear emotionally. With a quiet mind and a heart that is free from fear, you can begin to see, to realize, and it even feels like light coming in. It might be the dawning, and it might be a light bulb, and it might be lightning, but here comes the light. It's not a logical realization. It's an intuitive awareness of, oh, well, that makes perfect sense. Now, we've all had the experience of feeling like the top of our head has been blown open and we suddenly realize something, we understand something that had been confusing only a moment ago. Uh, you get a great new idea, conceptual, big picture, the whole gestalt, the whole enchilada, or you suddenly realize how all these pieces fit, or maybe you remember something that you had forgotten until just now. All of that what the Greeks call it, a eureka illumination, the illumination, the light, the aha experience. We've all had that from time to time. But what about doing it on demand instead of waiting for these aha experiences because they're so rare in our lives? What about accessing that channel tuning in to that frequency on demand when we need it. 
when we're feeling particularly afraid or especially alone or frightened or confused. And that's what prayer and meditation is. Now, again, in the religious traditions, you can pray mostly as a petition. There's prayer almost by definition means the petition that has little reference to the receiving. Properly understood, prayer is two-way, but for some reason, especially in uh, Christianity, it's seen as a petition, and then you don't wait for an answer. You expect the answer to be revealed with some kind of physical sign. We want a sign. We want some big coincidence or letters written in the sky or some remarkable synchronicity to dazzle us and amaze us. We want physical science. You missed the whisper. You, you could have, <laughs> it would have been whispered if you'd stuck around after the petition. And so <laughs> the concept of meditation is a little more complete, uh, though sometimes it may be a little one way in the other direction where Meditation overemphasizes the receiving side. But I think generally it's understood that meditation is both a petition and a receiving. It's a two-way conversation. But is it with God, the Father aspect? Is it with Jesus? Um, and if Jesus is the same as God, as the Christians say, then why did Jesus teach people to pray to the Father? You know, like, um, if Christ is the king, then who is the father aspect? I thought Christ was, Christ was the prince of peace. You see, and this is all mixed up and muddled up because the church trapped itself. It painted itself into a corner by pulling the soul out of heaven and saying it only indwells and actually putting itself, the church, in the middle position between God and man, between divinity and the incarnated being. So that man serves the church, and the church serves God when it should be. The church serves man who serves his own soul in service of the one life. So who are you praying to when you pray? I would, I would suggest you consider your own soul, or when you meditate, are you listening to the one life, or is there a, a, a level or a stage in, in between, a point of focus in the middle that you're able to tune into, able to access, because it's really not other than you, it's part of who you are, it's your North Pole, it's your higher, better self. You feel it every once in a while. You feel it when you're content, when you're happy, filled with joy. You know, um, you see beauty or some lovely event or circumstance that touches you deeply, emotionally and spiritually because it's about a connection of some sort, because it's about harmony and peace. It's about happiness and, and simple joy for no reason. That's available to us 
as a downward precipitation, I would argue, from the soul. Where does the soul get it? Well, of course, all things proceed from the highest kether, the highest aspect of God, which to most religious people would be the father aspect, which we've already said in Christianity is conflated with the soul or the son. But in the mystical traditions, there is a Godhead above even the Father. There is a God, so-called, an absolute, is what the philosophers say. I think that's a better word. An absolute, capital A, the ancients sometimes used the phrase, the one about whom not may be said. It stands above even the father aspect. In Taoism, this is called the Tao. And there's a famous saying in the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu that first there was the Tao. And from the Tao comes the one. Before there's a one, there has to be something. So that's the Tao. From the Tao comes the one. From the one comes the two. From the two comes the three. There's your middle way. And from the three come all things. Now, that's in the Tao Te Ching, but I can see that in the wisdom traditions of the world. To, to the mystics, who are working within or above all of the various religion traditions and the more free-form mystic on a very personal, contemplative path as well. This idea of uh, a God even above the Father aspect that would be the incomprehensible, unnameable, you can't even figure out Christ or Buddha, let alone the Father aspect, let alone the ultimate, absolute source of all things, the source CA of all things. But I want you to have that basic model, that traditional model, found again in, what do you want to call this stuff? It's mysticism. It's the ageless wisdom. It's uh, Aldous Huxley called it the perennial philosophy. My God, if you haven't read that book yet, get online and order it right now. The Perennial Philosophy. You know Aldous Huxley from Brave New World, right? Uh, he, he wrote all kinds of movies and screenplays. He wrote the, uh, the book about the psilocybin trip he did called Doors of Perception. Uh, Jim Morrison and the Doors took the name of their band from that book. Um, actually, Huxley took it from Blake, William Blake, who said if the doors of perception were but cleansed, things would appear as they are, infinite. And Huxley borrowed that. That, uh, that, that for the title of his book about his first psilocybin uh, mushroom trip, Doors of Perception, that's a great book. And he wrote Brave New World, but academically he's never done anything that, that approaches the perennial philosophy. That's that's a remarkable book. The pre I did a I did a class around that book a few years ago in uh, Los Angeles, and we read the book cover to cover. It took us uh, I don't know six or eight months, I think, and we read every line in that book, every sentence, every paragraph, 
and discussed it, like read a sentence or a paragraph and then talk about it, read another paragraph and talk about it. Wonderful. Um, I mean, very well annotated and footnoted and researched, not just his own pondering, but drawing for the most part upon the the, the, the teachings of, of, um, of the mystics of all times. And the perennial philosophy is another way of saying mysticism or esoteric philosophy or uh, Prisca Theologia. Uh, and again, these are references to the idea that um, in many cases the spiritual beliefs that have been the biggest threat to organized religion um, are the ones that have stood the test of time. And they're just reasonable. They resonate in the heart as well as in the mind. There's plenty of room for disagreement and further exploration. This is not a rigid, like, not like religion, and that it's a rigid model at all. There's, you know, get 15 mystics in a room, and and, and they'd laugh at you if anybody expected they'd agree on very much at all, except the the, the bare bones, the the basics. And to talk today, as we've done about the nature of the soul is about as, as, as basic as it gets. A middle point. This is the, the prince in the king-queen prince or the father-mother um, uh, trinity. This is the son aspect of the offspring, the soul being the interface of spirit and matter. That middle ground that has to exist for divinity to express itself in separated form without being diminished in any way or even affected. The mystics would say, there's an old mystical riddle that says, what comes third but stands as number two and makes the three a one? There's a nice riddle for you. What comes third stands as number two and makes the three a one. And of course, it's the soul. Coming third, meaning the first has to create, that is, spirit has to create matter. I'll say it that way. Spirit has to create matter. The father creates the mother. I always have to hesitate when I go into that. I have to want to do how much do I explain here? Remember, the mystics have always understood that the divine could not be of one gender or another. God could not be less than all that is. So, God is all that is. That means God got us all that is. Um, God is discussed, however, allegorically as a male, and the creation, the material world. Even mater, material means mother. The material world is mater. Um, primarily, the genders were applied to spirit and matter uh, only to create a sense of spirit as causative, like the male of a species, and the material world is receptive, like the female, uh, nurturing and receptive to the males advances sexually to the fact that most life forms 
um, you know, mom stays home. She's camouflaged. She she protects the nest, and and the male is brightly colored and more aggressive, and goes out into the world and and uh, brings home the money, brings home the bacon, <laughs> whatever. So um, it's always been understood by the most ancient mystics that God could not be less than all that is. So that would be male and female, and and any other variation you could think of but laid over that is a a gender that just refers to the polarity of spirit being the north pole and matter being the south pole the spirit being cause and matter being receptive that spirit is is coming into matter electricity is always going to the ground right that's where energy your spirit wants to go to the so the earth it wants to be grounded. You can see that in electricity. So, again, that's part of what I love about mysticism and esoteric philosophy is how eminently logical and reasonable it is. It also is very magical and very wondrous. And there are questions that will never be answered, questions that the approach is so unbelievably challenging that who would ever expect resolution of some of these great questions? So a mystic is one that always holds his or her mind open and holds your heart open. We really follow the heart and use the mind as a guide, but uh, the heart is the, the, the GPS system. You know that determines where we go. We go in the in the direction of what we love to do. We follow love. We grow. You follow anything that's not love. You reap that karma. Eventually, learn the lesson, and and then get back on track. So, does the soul unfold, and how does the soul develop itself as a consequence of its material incarnation working? in a world of separated form. It's really a rich and wonderful concept. And I think, although the church has banished it in the West uh, and largely in the East as well, religion is always afraid that if you're a mystic, you don't need organized religion. If if you're in charge of your 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 own particular unfoldment and your own growth, that you won't need them. It's not true. There's always the fellowship, there's always worship, there's always, um, well, I guess fellowship is really a good word for it. Um, and, and finding um, teachers who know a little more than you, um, who are also students. In, in this field, every teacher has to define himself as a student as well, I know I do. In fact, I think it's important that you beware of those who would dare to call themselves a master of anything. The old mystical tradition says those who know don't tell and those who tell don't know. <laughs> it doesn't mean you can't have teachers. We always need teachers, but humble teachers that know their students, I would be very skeptical and very careful around any seemingly spiritual person that would dare to call themselves a master. Uh, or allow others around them to call them master. That, that is so full of glamour. 
and so non-spiritual uh, that um, it should be apparent to any true student. Okay, well, let's uh, see if we can generate some comments here, uh, either by text or by telephone. If you're on the phone, just press star 2 on the telephone touchpad. And um, I see some callers, but I don't see hands at this point. If you'd like to talk, again, comment or question, I can unmute you one at a time. All you have to do is press star 2 on the telephone touchpad, and we can do that. I'll come back and check that in just a minute. And let's check the questions online, and then we'll do a meditation exercise, too, of some sort before we let you go today. We always do. Uh, let's see. We've got... Uh, Oh, Jim. This is Jim, my friend Jim McClellan. He's phonetically spelling his city. <laughs> Ka'au. We were wondering how to pronounce uh, the name of the city. Jim and his wife live over on the Big Island, about a hundred and some miles from me. And uh, so just got back from the farmer's market. Nice to see you. Thanks for checking in, Jim. Carol Postel in California, La Habra. Hello, Michael and Doreen. Great topic. She said, I've had some of the same thoughts myself, and it'll never be the way it was. Um, what else have I got here? She says, time for all of us to move forward. Yeah, I certainly agree with that. Um, in Desert Hot Springs, Paul Krasner. Hello, Paul. There's not a question, but I wanted to share an idea, a notion several years ago he says, I compiled and edited a collection titled Pot Stories for the Soul. My publisher got a cease and desist letter from the attorney for the pub or from the publisher of Chicken Soup for the Soul, although uh, neither uh, theologians nor scientists know where the soul is located, but it can be copyrighted. All the best, Paul. <laughs> That's very good. I'm sure most of you know who Paul is, uh, uh, besides being a funny fella and a comedian. He's all, uh, also an author. He's written a lot of funny stuff. He's also wrote, written, some, written some very serious stuff, including uh, The Realist, going back to the 60s. And uh, Paul was one of the original yippies. And uh, I'm happy to say a friend of mine. And he and his wife, Nancy, live uh, out in the desert. So uh, wonderful to hear from you and uh, give our aloha to uh, Nancy. Come and see us on Maui. Um, and we'll talk about your book on uh, Pot Stories for the Soul. All right? Um, let's see. Yvonne in Los Angeles is saying hello, just saying howdy. Uh, what else? Dave Murdy in Brea is with us. Hello, David. Aloha, Michael. He says, good to hear you today. Talk to you soon. Um, this is an interesting line. Jim on the Big Island is jumping back in. and He has a quote from somebody named Tookie Williams. Redemption is tailor-made for the wicked. Um, that's deep. That's uh, the I'd have to reflect on that before I could comment on it, but 
if you're saying it's another form of control, another way to use fear to make people uh, behave like sheep, uh, I think you got a good point, or Tookie does anyway. Uh, out of Canoga Park, California, Phil Jaffe says, Love is strange. It was done by Mickey and Sylvia, not Ian and Sylvia. Okay, wrong group. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. And David Cantu in Louisville, Texas says, Hello, seems, Michael, that so many souls incarnate without much thought given. I've also heard it explained that we choose our parents. Are we responsible to some extent with our incarnations into this life? What are your thoughts on this great show? Yeah, well, that would be obviously a matter of speculation. That's a specific enough detail that nobody could really say for sure with any kind of authority. But um, if you proceed from the basic assumption that we've been given free will in form, then certainly as a soul, eternal and infinite, we would have free will granted to us as well. So that means that we would have to choose to incarnate. And in that sense, yeah, you're choosing the opportunity. You're choosing this vehicle, this body, and therefore these parents and their karma and the opportunity in that situation for you to work out your particular karma in this given lifetime. So I think that's where that kind of um, belief comes from. I, th I think it all uh, proceeds from the idea of free will. You know, I obviously have free will right now. Um, you know, I willfully decided to come and do class today. I could have just as willfully stayed in bed and ignored you all. Uh, hard to imagine, but I could, right? Intention is the whole power and, and, and purpose of, of will, willpower, free will. That's, you know, that's where it all begins. So I think that's why most people... Uh, who study deeply would probably agree that, yeah, you, you are making choices all the way along. You choose to incarnate, you choose the parents, you choose the lifetime. Conceivably, because there's no time or space where the soul dwells, you could choose to go forward or back in time. The idea of a future life not happening, only your past lives have happened, um, that doesn't necessarily translate to a timeline born of space. You know, time is a function of space. So from the soul's point of view, all of your lives are essentially live simultaneously. Again, it's really hard to get your head around that concept um, as a separated being. We've got a brain designed to, to, to be used in the four-dimensional world, three dimensions of space and time. The brain doesn't really work very well when you ask it to conceive of, well, what about outside of space and time? And it can be done, but it's a matter of the powers of the mind and the heart of consciousness, again, uh, going beyond the brain in what most people would call a, a meditation. Um, or realization exercise. 
Um, okay, also Doreen in the other room is logging on just to say a great show, say hi to everybody. Uh, Carol and Jim and Colleen and everybody and and the legendary Paul Krasner. Hello to Paul and Nancy. Yeah, isn't that cool that uh, Paul was able to listen in today? All right, let me check the phones and see who's on the phone. We do have a couple of people that want to talk. And let me check our clock. Yeah, we got plenty of time for this. So let's start in um, Sacramento and see who we have. I didn't get a, I don't see a name on my board. So uh, whoever's calling from Sacramento, good afternoon and welcome to the Wisdom School. Hi, can you hear me? I can. I hear you okay. just fine. Great. My name is Denise. Hi, Denise. And, uh, hi. I've been trying to get to talk to you. I haven't been able to uh, get on through my computer, so I figured I'd try the phone. Um, I have a question. The dark night of the soul, it's something that I hear a lot about, um, and it kind of, well, to give you a little background, I'm in recovery. Um, I have 11 years in recovery, and when I think back about my life before, it seems like it was dark and, and thick and very dense. Um, it was almost like I lived underwater or in mud, and every day was a struggle. It was a struggle sometimes even to sleep. And then my life changed, and I'm on this, this spiritual path, and things seem to get lighter and brighter the further I go. There's something that I keep hearing called the dark night of the soul, and for some reason I visualize it being like it was before, and it, it makes me hesitant. Um, I've well, never... Let me let me give you a brief response, and then we can go a little, you know, a little okay. beyond that. Um, the first thing that comes to mind for me is a book written 300 years ago or so um, by St. John of the Cross. Uh, he was a, a Spanish uh, monk, uh, Catholic, but again, at a time when... Um, there still were mystics among Catholic uh, monks and, and uh, priests and such. He was a student of St. Teresa of Avila, uh, who wrote The Interior Castle. And both of these are metaphysical classics, um, especially for those who are of a Christian or Catholic background. They're very mystical. They're very edgy. Uh, they both got into trouble with the Pope for the way they were writing. Uh, it's very similar to Dante Alle uh, uh, Alighieri's uh, Divine Comedy and the, and the, the um, you know the um, the Inferno and that whole story of purgation and uh, very rich and wonderful traditions. But Saint John, as a student of of, uh, of Saint Teresa, Saint John of the Cross wrote *Dark Night of the Soul* about a stage in the evolution of the human soul, where the incarnated soul, the persona or egoic being, feels completely abandoned by God, as if all of our efforts to be good people, to be kind, and to be loving have been spurned or rejected of utter hopelessness and, and devastation uh, without hope, 
absolutely desperate. And the only debate about this um, <clears throat> is, are we talking about periods in a given life, or as many believe, was St. John saying that this was often an entire lifetime uh, in the development of the human soul, that just before a soul becomes very advanced, and let's say Christed or Buddha-like, it might go through this one lifetime where it's the ultimate test, the final exam, where you feel, again, really depressed and abandoned. Others have said, oh no, he's talking about those periods we all go through in life where we feel that way. So mm. I think any discussion of the dark night of the soul, and I'll give you an allegory to the allegory. A friend of mine, Andrew Harvey, wrote a book called The Sun at Midnight, mm -hmm. which is the same concept. You know, where is the sun? It's abandoned me. Oh, no, it went away. It's not here. It left me alone. Well, the sun's there, obviously. It's just midnight. You don't see it. So when we feel abandoned by God, Andrew is saying, obviously, you know, we can't be separated except by appearance. So it's understandable that we could feel abandoned as we go through horrible times in our lives, but like the sun at midnight, um, the soul could never uh, be other than part of the ground of God. That's the way Plato would say it. You can't be separated from your source. Okay. All right. So you don't think that someone would, def would necessarily have to go through that? in order to um, progress spiritually? I think we all go through it. I mean, uh, yeah, I think we, yeah, in, in, in any lifetime. I think Christ... And to, to what degree? I mean, I mean, what degree? I'm trying to figure, you know, is this something I have to look at that may be happening to me in the future, or is it something that's behind me? I mean, is there just one time that it happens, or does, does it happen more than once? Well, I'm not sure what you mean by it, but if you just, just mean... This, this experience of the, of the dark night of the soul. Are you talking this, about for days or weeks or months? or? Years? Well, this was the whole first half of my life. Yeah. You know, I'm... I'm I, can't, I can't... I have no way, Denise, of knowing. I couldn't yeah. begin to even pretend that I would know whether you're done with this. But mm -hmm. what I would say to you is look at what you learned from it mm. that could never be taken from you. Look at what you know and will always remember now and be able to apply so that even if only as a, a function of your own free will, you're able to avoid future pain and depression and hopelessness and, 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 and all of that just by having learned these lessons and saying, boy, I'm never going to have to, thank God I won't have to go back through that stuff again. Exactly. And in, in that case, I do have a choice. Right. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to have new challenges up front. True. True. And if we're in form, if we're here on this earth and we're still here, I think that means there's still work to be done and lessons to be learned. Yeah, exactly. 
And then you also might want to consider your, how can I say this, responsibility to teach, to share what you know with other people. You know, you can't, you can't teach what you don't know. A teacher of mine used to say, if you're going to guide people up the mountain, you've got to climb the mountain. You can't just take them to the base of the mountain and then point the way from the base and call yourself a guide. You've got to walk up. You're usually at the head of the pack. You've got to go up the mountain with them again, even though you're the teacher. And so we have to have these experiences so we'll have something to share with other people and then again you gotta consider the appropriateness of the discussion of who you're talking to some religious people get too fixated they don't want to hear any of this kind of discussion others love it i love this stuff obviously and you're asking good questions so mm-hmm. i mean how do you think you're doing how you doing denise how you feeling my life is awesome Awesome. It's awesome. It is. And yet you're telling me there's a part of you that's waiting for the second shoe to drop? Well, no, I'm not waiting, but I hear so much about, you know, this dark night of the soul that's going to happen as you progress spiritually. Before you can get to another level, you have to go through this. And um, I say to myself, look, you know, I feel like spirituality is for people who've already been there and don't want to go back. You know, religion is for the people that don't want to go there. <laughs> you That's know? well said, yeah. Yeah, and I've been there. I don't I don't think I need to go back. Well. But then again, like you said, you know, there's, there's lessons to be learned. Sometimes I can't believe I chose this, you know, but then on another, on another level, I'm glad I did. There's, I think, always going to be an opportunity for us to do for others, if not for ourselves. Yeah. That's where I'm at right now, too. It's pointing in that direction for me, from everywhere. Did you ever see the movie? Um, did you ever see the movie Grand Torino? Yeah, I did. With Clint Eastwood, do you remember how it ended? Oh gosh, no, I can't remember offhand. Well, the storyline is about this neighborhood in Detroit, right? Where this old Caucasian guy has lived all of his life. But there's um, third world people moving in all around him, um, particularly a bunch of these Laotian Hmong uh, tribesmen who um, befriended the CIA in the Vietnam War. They were actually uh, opium poppy um, farmers, true story. And, and the CIA uh, bought their heroin and um, secured their allegiance. Well, then when we lost the war, the communists were going to kill them all. So um, America moved tens of thousands of these these Hmong tribesmen from the jungles of Laos, really. Imagine this third world rainforest um, mm. it, it, to various uh, parts of the United States. And uh, so they have their gangs and such, and um, I'm going to end up telling you the whole darn movie just because I... Yeah, I remember the movie, but I can't remember the end. Well, the end is you think he's going to revenge a gang killing right. by picking up a gun and going and wiping all these people out. And in fact, what he does is set it up so that they kill him 
he arranges for witnesses to be there. That's right. I remember so they, they, In other words, the allegory is he took a bullet. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's a little um, Christ-like, if you will, the idea of a sacrifice and that we all have, yeah, our crosses to bear. We, we can share what we know with other people. And, and again, a humble, not an arrogant or better than you, um, superior, I've been through it, you don't, you haven't, I'm better than you. But in a humble, kind way, share what we've learned. Share our light. Don't, don't keep our light under a bushel. And, and where best to share from but our own personal pain. Mm-hmm. So I encourage you to teach. I think I think that will help you. I'm feeling like that'll really help you release this concern you have about whether the second shoe is going to drop. Like, did I do it already, uh, or is there more to come? I think there's more to come, but I think you're so much better now that you'll waltz through it. <laughs> you'll embrace it and seduce it and... And and move through it in a much more elegant and graceful way because you'll be conscious that you're doing it. You're applying your skills. That's Wonderful. My sense of, yeah. Okay. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate the phone call. Okay. Thanks for being with us. And um, let's see. You've also in Albuquerque got Diane with us. Hello, Diane. You're on the Mystery School with Michael. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm better and better, thank you. I'm nice. so glad. Um, nice to you know, you. question, but I wanted to respond to Denise, too. Sure. You know, so many of us have challenging, dark beginnings in our lives. And then we have all these blessings and beautiful lives like Denise has. There can come a time later in life when you reach another dark time, maybe a dark time that really pretty much takes you to your knees where you question if you are not abandoned and are not alone again. But through that time, through that darkness, the real blessings come, the pathway comes. And I look back at that time in my life and say, what a gift. I would do it a thousand times over to have reached the destination it took me to. Yeah, I think uh, Christopher Reeve, remember this uh, handsome, uh, uh, idyllic superhero, then he ended up playing Superman and really was that character. Then he fell off a horse and broke his back and he couldn't move and he couldn't even breathe without a machine. He insisted it was the best thing that ever happened to him. I know. I know. Best thing that ever happened to him. I mean, that's if that's what it takes to wake up, then what if we could wake up without breaking our backs? Wouldn't that be lovely? Wouldn't it be? Yeah, I think sometimes we have to get hit over the head to wake up. I do, <laughs> I do too. Yeah. So... And then my other question, my original question, Michael, was 
Do you not, do you, what do you think about, is our soul always around us, within us, and waiting for us to wake up? Yeah, um, it's behind our thoughts and behind our feelings and behind their speech and our behavior. It's sitting back there quietly. Um, as we're ch- when we're children, it's, it's um, at times I think comes forward in a big way. Yes. And then as we get into puberty and we get confused about character and what role or part we're going to play in the world, like am I going to be a jock or a geek or a doper or am I going to be gay or straight? Am I going to be conservative or liberal? Uh, The soul gets quiet because this ego, this egoic self needs to develop. And by the way, brainwaves at this point, the average or mean brainwave is advancing now um, through those meditative stages of mind and beginning to move into the beta level, into the awake, alert, scattered, out into the world level. That's what a teenager is going through in terms of brain development as well. And uh, so then it's only later in life in response to pain and suffering that we start poking around inside and seeing if we can find a thought that will explain this to us. And lo and behold, the thoughts help, but not nearly as much as the feeling behind the thought. And then only when your feelings are relatively calm and free from emotional distortion. In other words, beyond thought is feeling, and beyond emotional feeling, only when the thoughts are quiet and the emotions are calm, can we really begin to, to feel the spiritual, the more rarefied, the finer, more subtle spiritual wisdom that is sitting back there patiently, timelessly, eternally, uh, waiting for us to call upon it. And then it, it, it'll answer, you know. Exactly. And through meditation, we're taking those brain waves back to the lower levels that we had. And it's not magic. You know, you hear from people all the time. It takes 20 years of practicing meditation to be able to get where you need to go. I don't really believe that. <clears throat> I think it may take that long for some of the great gurus that wanted to do things, you know, beyond what my interest might be. Um, I don't really want to levitate or do things like that or live the majority of my life on the other plane. I'd like to be right here right now. But I think getting in touch with your soul is, you know, there's no locked door. It's there. And so once you can learn the process of, of breathing and moving those brain waves down into alpha and possibly theta, it's there. It's not magic. It's there. I really like the movie theater allegory because it helps with so many questions about our relationship with the soul. If we understand that we're looking away from it, when we look out into the physical world through our physical senses, 
We're looking at a reflection. We're looking at the movie screen, not at the projector. And when the movie is over and somebody says, I know I mentioned this earlier today, I just think it's so rich. And somebody says, hey, where'd the movie go? You know, you as a metaphysician and a student of these things uh, point out happily, well, it didn't go anyplace, Junior. It's right where it always was. Look, behind us, up in that room, up there. It's right. So where do we go when we die? Nowhere. We already are there. That's who we are, behind the, the, the confusing thoughts and the emotional turmoil of the egoic self is this perpetual light. It's always there. It's always on. It's what we are, in essence, an extension of this always available self. But can we tune into it? You know, you, you might like the radio have to turn the dial up and down to, to, to synchronize or harmonize uh, uh, with with just the right frequency. You see, to tune into that because it's so subtle. Sometimes it just blasts through. You know, like we talked about before, and that's a wonderful feeling too. But we need to develop it. And again, I think we're changed every time we do that. We bring a little more of it back with us. You know, the the, um, the, the carryover effect then when you move back into the world of illusion, the world of separated forms, yeah, you bring a little of that real insight and understanding with you yeah, every, every time you do that. You know, a little more awake. And I think not only do you bring it back with you, but you've opened the pathway and your soul begins to speak to you more clearly. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a nice way to say it, Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Dan. Anything else for us? No, thank you. It was a wonderful class. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it, too. I want to do a little visualization exercise here before we finish and... Uh, so let me thank you, and uh, hopefully we'll see you Thursday at the video conference, right? Absolutely. I would not miss it. All right, good. We'll see you then. Uh, bye-bye. Reminding you to check your newsletter. It comes out on Friday, usually, sometimes Saturday, but most days, most weeks. The Personal Empowerment Newsletter from FocusedPassion.com and TheAgelessWisdom.com usually comes in on Friday. And in addition to the links to this live webinar, um, you'll also find information about our social site, which is very cool. It's like uh, Facebook for students of the wisdom. Well, we just set it up a few weeks ago. We've got, I think, 105 members so far uh, who are coming back and filling in their profile and adding their photos and what they do and we're just starting to learn to message each other and to exchange information. Uh, you know, imagine Facebook for like-minded people, people who uh, are like uh, Denise and Diane and, and the other people that wrote to us uh, today, Jim and Carol, and, you know, people who are interested in such things and the, and, and the consequences. So we can have our own social net. That's it. TheAgelessWisdom.ning.com 
you got to put N-I-N-G. It's a Ning network. But put theagelesswisdom.ning.com to, to sign up and sign in at the social net. Then um, the main site for the Wisdom School, of course, is theagelesswisdom.com. And our sister site is focusedpassion.com with an E-D, focused passion.com where we provide a premium audio program with my business partner of 35 years Steve Snyder bringing his knowledge and expertise in meaningful conversation that's what that program is all about it's studio quality it's pre-recorded it's podcast for 99 cents at focusedpassion.com and it's what makes all this other stuff free so if you can sign on for three dollars and change a month uh, uh, help us with that and those programs you can forward to we we've got a device to help you forward those to as many friends as you'd like so it's cool to have them as a resource plus an archive available to you of 140 some programs 145 programs uh, and you can buy those individually, any one for 99 cents, so check it out. Um, that's some great stuff. So I think Steve and I together are, are even better because uh, we're so different in, in so many ways, and yet we share this common interest. So check out that website too. And the uh, point of all of that was join the Thursday night video conference if you've got a, a webcam and a microphone and are interested in these kinds of personal growth and uh, spiritual growth topics, and that's all at Zorap. And again, you'll find the information in the newsletter. If you're not getting the newsletter for some reason, sign on at theagelesswisdom.com. Just hit the button that says free newsletter. All right, I'd like to suggest that you get comfortable here. We'll do a quick little visualization exercise. And... Uh, do some shoulder shrugs and some head rolls and then with your shoulders back and your neck, your head, your neck, your, your, your spine, perfectly aligned. <sighs> Begin to breathe. Take a few slow, deep breaths and relax. Pulling in strength and power as you inhale. Hold for a moment as you peek. And as you exhale, feel the letting go. Muscles relaxing and unwinding. Put it all down. You're in control of your ability to drop your guard. You're in control of lowering your defenses. Feel the letting go. And allow your breathing to find a natural rhythm. In other words, after those initial slow, deep breaths, and you can do that again anytime you'd like, well, let your body breathe itself. And feel how it feels to turn over responsibility for breathing to some other part of yourself. Well, let's do it again. 
consciously decide to take a slow, deep breath. And when you're ready, feel yourself choosing to do it now and then choosing to breathe. A nice, big, slow, deep breath. And you could continue to do that. And at any time, you can feel a letting go where you hand over that responsibility to autopilot. Now watch it happen. The easiest thing in the world to watch yourself handing over to autopilot. The job of breathing that's already beating your heart and digesting food and repairing and replacing cells without your permission or your willful intent. Let it breathe itself. And allowing my voice to guide you. And knowing in a few minutes I'll bring you right back and you can feel throughout this exercise the cushion supporting you and the floor beneath your feet. And I'd like you to, in the same way you released and turned over to auto-self, the job of breathing, I'd like you to turn over the emotional nature. Feel the letting go that goes with not resisting your feelings anymore. Not forcing, not trying to shape or manipulate or manage, but just letting go. Feel like water flowing. Feel the letting go of, of water flowing as you allow yourself to feel however you feel and you just let it go. And you don't try to feel one way or another. You just allow yourself to experience whatever you feel in the moment. If it's uncomfortable in any way, put your attention directly on the discomfort and easily feel it fully and completely moving through it, letting it go. And in the same way you've turned your breathing over and you've let go of your emotions, allowing my voice to guide you, let go of the will to think. Let go of the belief that understanding is always mental. Find the gap between a couple of thoughts and open it just a little bit. 
and then find a somewhat larger gap of silence, a stillness between a couple of thoughts, and rest there. You are not your thoughts. You are your awareness. If we had to be aware of beating our hearts and consciously aware of digesting food, if we had to be aware of the way in which our body fights disease and body temperature and blood pressure, and we had to continue to manage our feelings to try to make them be positive and not negative, and our thoughts if we had to constantly be figuring things out and judging and labeling and pigeonholing, how in the world would there there be any room left at all to consider who you really are? To consider who you really are, to consider to contemplate and reflect upon the nature of your own soul. In form, but above and free of form. Let go of your breathing. Your body will breathe itself. Let go of trying to feel any way at all, and just be. However you feel, and let go of those thoughts. Thoughts are things, they're shapes, they're forms. They're just thoughts. They're not yours. Other people have thought those same thoughts. They're mostly really quite used, pre-owned, you know, used. A little worn around the edges, some of these thoughts. Let them go. Be the calm, the still, silent. And feel the warmth of the light that allows you to see, to realize that you are truth. You are love truth. You are awareness that you exist as love. Truth, justice, Compassion, forgiveness, mercy, harmony, generosity, kindness, patience, and forgiveness, and tolerance. Love, truth is wisdom, the ageless wisdom. Consciousness is who you are, what you are that you are. Allow yourself to be filled, your physical body, as if it were a vessel, a container, to feel as if it's being filled 
by this buttery warmth, this light, this love truth. First, all your legs are filled, and then the torso begins to fill, and you can feel the warmth spreading into every corner, every little nook and cranny, up to the shoulders and down the arms, through the elbows to the fingertips. And then the head, of course, begins to fill. Even the edges of the ears and right out to the end of every single hair that grows from your head. The love and the light, the truth, the wisdom, the essence of consciousness, healing, expanding, growing, learning, changing, improving, transmuting, uplifting, making better, more valuable, And that's life. That's what life is. Love expanding. Understanding expanding. Bring that with you gently, as if it were fragile. Be careful with it. Your understanding is fragile. The truth, of course, behind it is eternal and infinite. But your understanding is fragile, so protect it and care for it. As you feel the cushion supporting you, the floor beneath your feet, breathe in. And after peaking, exhale slowly. And open your eyes now, wide awake, alert. Rested, back in the room, feeling fine, and carrying a little bit of that love and that light with you out into the physical world. Now go spread that around gently. Go appreciate some beauty. All you got to do is gaze upon beauty, and you're sharing that love. Okay, The very fact that you come into a group of people calms and pacifies tranquilizes and harmonizes just by the nature of the vibration that you carry with you wherever you go. As an ambassador, if you will, a liaison, a a representative of the reality that behind it all there's nothing but love, truth, wisdom, peace, deep and profound understanding, growing and expanding always. Everything is expanding, everything is growing, everything is evolving and unfolding. I hope you make it a point to join us every Sunday, hopefully live, but at least by replay or podcast. Do visit FocusedPassion.com. Remember the ED, it's the W's.FocusedPassion.com. And for just 99 cents a week, get signed up for the most powerful personal empowerment broadcast, podcast, programming of any kind uh, for just 99 cents. Check out the archive. Okay. Thanks for listening. Thanks for calling. Thanks for being with us. As always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner. Aloha from Maui.